0: Well, amen. That's good. I'm not going to tell other Christians how to be a Christian, but I will say I cannot find any compatibility between the way this president conducts himself and anything I find in Scripture. Now, I begin with that quote um, that was given or spoken by a current presidential candidate. This past week, not to make a political statement in any way myself or to start a debate about the veracity of the statement. But I make the statement or I share that with you because the gentleman himself who who said this. He himself professes to be a Christian, but his own lifestyle and particular social positions are objectively incompatible with scripture as well. It's the proverbial pot calling the kettle black. And we live, and, I, and I, again, I start there because we live in a time, we live in a culture where there are at least three isms that seem to rule the day. One is subjectivism. Uh, it's the emphasis on personal feelings or responses as opposed to facts or evidence. We have relativism or a belief that concepts such as right and wrong and good and bad and good and evil, truth and falsehood are not absolute. And they change from person to person, situation to situation, culture to culture, time to time. And then there's also pragmatism. Uh, The pragmatism is the belief that a concept should be based or evaluated upon uh, how it works, not whether or not it's right or wrong. And as a result of these three isms and, of course, a number of other factors, um, people today don't, to quote Paul, endure sound teaching But having itching ears, they accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And they are being taken again to quote Paul captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And unfortunately, like Luther and Calvin and many of the other reformers. Many of those who stand on platforms today in front of congregations. Believe that the answer to the problem, this this overarching problem and all that kind of falls out from it. They believe that the the answer is not God's word proclaimed through its preaching. But rather. They believe in worldly advice that's given through motivational TED Talks. And that's because they believe that the power to convert sinners and the power that's necessary to edify and to build up God's people is found in their own creativity, their own winsomeness, their own speaking ability, rather than the Spirit of God working through Scripture itself. Even though the words of Paul are clear to Timothy, he says all Scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. They believe believe in themselves, despite what Peter says about God's divine power. It's God's power that has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Again, they're trusting in their own power and their own abilities. Rather than what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 19 that we just sang a few moments ago. And of course, it's not going to surprise you that... The writer of Hebrews agrees. Not with the others, but with Paul. If it isn't Paul, that's for another day. Our passage tonight that rest read says this. The word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. To whom we must give an account. This is where we find ourselves tonight. It's a bold statement. Regarding two things. Regarding the sufficiency of scripture. And the severity of scripture. The sufficiency of God's word. And the severity of God's word. And that's. That's our simple outline tonight. There is space in the back of your bulletin and the note taking guide for those that wish to use it. But let's pray before we begin. Father, would you, uh, by your spirit, allow us tonight to consider both the incarnate word, Jesus, and the written word, the Bible? Would you allow us to consider both more fully and completely? And as we do, help us to strive to enter into the rest that you have provided for us in and through him. Please use me in such a way that you accomplish the ends you desire through the simple means you have ordained, which is the preaching of your word that endures forever. Speak through what you have already spoken. May it pierce our hearts and not return void. And I pray these things in the more excellent name of Jesus, through whom you have fully and finally spoken. Amen. And amen. Well, just by way of review, we need to go back a little bit to to set and, and to, well, to set the context for these two very important verses. If you'll remember, recall over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the warning that the writer has given to those who are reading this letter to not harden their hearts. He's admonished them and he's exhorted them not to succumb to the pressures of, of the trials and the sufferings and the difficulties that they have faced amidst, amidst that escalating persecution by the Romans as well as the pressure they're receiving from uh, their Jewish friends. And that pressure is causing them to consider to shrink back. Uh, To forsake the Lord Jesus, to revert back to their Judaism, basically to renounce their faith. And he's been urging them not to fall into unbelief. He's he said, look, don't throw up your hands in the midst of these things. Don't don't give up. Don't say things like God must not be for us. Or he must not be an all-powerful God. Because if he was, he would change our circumstances and deliver us from from out of them. He he wants them to not say anything like, well, he must not be loving or kind. Or these things would not be happening to us. He doesn't want them to think, to believe, or to say anything like, well, he's, he's abandoned. He doesn't want them to grumble. He doesn't want them to complain because those are just symptoms of unbelief. And he doesn't want them, again, to give in to that unbelief. And so to solidify the case and to to support why reverting back to Judaism wasn't or isn't a good idea or even an option, he pulls out the Old Testament. He pulls out the Old Testament scriptures and he says, listen, this isn't merely my opinion. This is God's opinion. This is it's not my word that's authoritative. It's God's word that's authoritative, authoritative. And it's the Holy Spirit that attests to the fact that you should not harden your hearts. And and he says that the Holy Spirit is is speaking through what he has already spoken. And And he says right here in. Psalm 95. And he walks through and and uses Psalm 95 to do a couple of things. First, he reminds them of their forefathers. He reminds them of their disbelief and their disobedience. And in doing so, he says, don't be like them. Don't do what they've done. Don't do what they did. As a matter of fact, why would you even consider reverting back to your Judaism... When you saw the consequences of their actions, he says, "It doesn't make sense for you to do what they did when you see what it cost them." He says, "You know the consequences." He, he shares with them. He says, it's, "It's their unbelief. It's because of their unbelief that they were barred from the promised land. They weren't entered. They weren't able to enter in. They were the only ones at the time serving the living God, and they turned their backs on him." Everyone in Canaan was serving lifeless idols, and yet they still chose to abandon him. They fell away. And everybody over the age of 20 at the time of the exodus weren't, weren't allowed to enter in, except for Caleb and Joshua, those who believed the promise. And so the writer says, "Don't you see, things haven't changed? It's insane. To think that something different is going to happen or or, or that you would expect different results from doing the same thing? He said, God has not changed. The consequences of unbelief haven't changed. And he says, if you think, if you remember, he says, if you think that the consequences were severe for them, you need to understand that the consequences for you are even greater. Because if you forsake the Lord Jesus, you're you're giving up that eternal rest that's been promised. Salvation is by faith alone, but it's by a faith that endures. And so he says, finish strong. And the second thing that he does is he changes his tone. If you remember from last week, he changes his tone a bit and he moves from focusing on the disobedience to the faithfulness of God right to the promise of God so he shifts he changes his tone away from man's response to God's promise and he said and he says that God made a promise to his people and that promise remains that promise still stands it hasn't been rescinded in any way he hasn't taken it back it's one and the same promise It's the same good news. He didn't have to make a new promise because they failed to embrace the promise. And you'll remember, we said that the surety and validity and longevity of the promise was not and is not determined by the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of the recipient. But the longevity and the validity and the surety of the promise is based upon the faithfulness of the one who made it. And it was God. God made the promise. And he will make his promise sure. This is one promise for one people, for one plan of salvation. And the promise was was good and was the same yesterday, today and forever, because God himself was the same yesterday, today and forever. And he wanted them to hold on to that. And what did he promise? The promise was rest. We saw that he offered his people an exclusive spiritual eternal Sabbath rest that's available now by faith But fully and finally available at the consummation of all things upon Christ's return. And the writer has called them to strive into that rest. To strive into that which is ahead and that rest which remains. Because the time between the rest now and the time between that full and final rest is hard. It's difficult. Again, the suffering and the pain... And all that's involved with the trials and the pressure. So he says, it's necessary for you to strive. It's necessary to persevere and to endure to the end that you might enter into that full and final rest. Which brings us to the text tonight. His tone again changes. It changes and he makes what Luther calls a terrifying statement. It's a terrifying statement that is intended to repeat and to drive home the point that what he has been admonishing and what he has been exhorting them to do is, again, he's, re- he's repeating himself in, in some way. He's saying this. This is not my opinion. It's God's opinion. My word is not authoritative. His word is authoritative. This is what God... His word, what God has said by His Spirit, through His word, is what you should, in fact, do. This command is from Him. You should heed what has been said. You need to hear it. You need to listen to it. And do what the Lord says and the word says you should do. Because the word is not to be disobeyed. And if you disobey... You will experience extreme consequences. In the words of Calvin, it is though the author had said, whenever the Lord addresses us by his word, he deals seriously with us in order that he may touch all our inmost thoughts and feelings. And so there is no part of our soul which ought not to be roused." And that's because the word is sufficient and severe. Let's look first at sufficiency. Verse 12, he says, the word is living. It's the living word because God is a living God. The word that he has spoken is alive. It's an everlasting word because God is everlasting. It endures forever because God endures forever. As we quote many times from Isaiah 40, right? The gra- grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The Bible is not full of cold, dead doctrine, but life giving truth. But he doesn't stop there. He says the word is active and the word is, or sorry, the word is living and the word is active. It's effective. He says it's powerful. It performs. It binds. It frees. It creates and recreates or regenerates. It sustains. It uplifts. The word is never frustrated or defeated. It does what it says it will do. It, it prom, it it does what it promises it will do. It brings about what it says it will bring about. It doesn't need to be added to or taken away because it is sufficient and adequate for the task that the Lord has ordained it to fulfill. Whatever God intends, it will do and it will be. In Isaiah 55, the Lord says through the prophet, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth Making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It's effective. And it's alive and active, and then he says it's sharper. As I was Trying to explain to the children, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces and divides. That means it's not a butter knife. There isn't a blunt edge, and it never dulls, so it never fails to cut. No matter which direction it's going. It penetrates, it separates, it dissects, it fillets, Right? So whether you're into science or fishing, you get the idea, right? The point is there's nothing that it fails to affect. And nowhere it fails to reach. Again, it, does, it goes and does what God intends. There isn't a place it cannot go and work and accomplish what God has purposed it to accomplish. And then finally he says the word discerns. It's living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. discerns, it critiques. It discriminates or distinguishes. It convicts and pronounces judgment. In other words, we don't sit in judgment over it. It sits in judgment over us. And when we read it, it reads us. Burke Parks put it this way, The Word of God is never to be the object of our scrutiny. Rather, the Word of God is that by which the Holy Spirit scrutinizes us. By His Word, the Lord employs His own version of higher criticism as He inspects our lives, interrogates our proud hearts, and reveals our sin. And he does that righteously and justly and fairly and without prejudice because God himself is righteous and fair and just and without prejudice. It is objective. The standard is objective and fixed because this standard is the Lord himself who does not change. And this discernment, of course, is necessary for us. It's necessary because we're being, as I mentioned to the children, we're being sanctified. And, and therefore, in the process of becoming what we've been declared to be in Christ. And we've been called to be holy and to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And we therefore need to know what good works are. We need to know what they are and what they aren't. And as we read... Earlier from 2 Timothy 3, it's God's word that equips us to do every good work, to do every good thing. So to disobey his word puts us at odds with the goal that he has for us. But the writer really takes it another step. He takes it another step because he not only speaks of the sufficiency, he speaks of the severity he says the word it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The depth, he's speaking of the depth and the precision of that piercing, of that critique. He's talking about the innermost parts of our being. It goes way, way beyond our actions. The heart is the central most part of the personality. And it includes us spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, and morally. It's the seed of our thoughts and our affections and our passions and purposes. And so his word, the author, writer is saying that the word plums the depths of who we are completely and totally and doesn't leave anything out. It reaches the innermost recesses. In those places where we rarely go. Into those places that we aren't always willing and at times not even able to go. Right? It goes into those places and identifies things that we may not even know exist. And it's able to discern And to divide what we say from what we actually think and what we actually do and from what motivates us. So it separates and divides our words from our actions and our actions from from our true wants and desires. So there isn't a thought, there isn't an intention, there isn't a desire or an act that isn't uncovered. And notice in verse 13, he shifts from talking about the word to talking about God himself. And he says, no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He says, no one is out of God's sight. Boys and girls, just imagine playing hide and seek. And there never being a spot you can't be found. All of us are intimately known by the Lord. There isn't one part of us. There isn't one detail about us that isn't known by Him and brought to light by His Word. That's how intimately He knows us. We are completely exposed. The language is about being exposed and naked, but laid bare, open before Him by His Word. There's some, there, there's some graphic things I could share. Just trust me. There's nothing he doesn't understand about us and that the word doesn't reveal. His knowledge of us is exhaustive. He knows us better than we know ourselves. There's nowhere we can hide. There's nothing we can use for cover. He says, "You're naked, exposed, completely and un- completely and utterly vulnerable and helpless before the Lord. And every mask we attempt to create and hide behind is futile. We're in full view. We're in full view of the Lord and have to give an account. Philip Hughes puts it best. He says, this profound and solemn truth is one that man in his fallenness does not like to face. It is damaging to his self-esteem. It destroys proud pretensions to wisdom and competence. And it discloses the futile superficiality of all the elaborate defense which we seek to erect against God. But God sees all things as we never can in the ultimate light of our undisguised reality. His gaze penetrates beneath the surface and beyond every specious facade to the radical heart of our being. Indeed, a man's knowledge, even of his own self, is faulty and inadequate. That simply means that we're not as smart and as righteous and as honest and as put together and as worthy and as important or genuine as we think we are. And we're more sinful and needy than we realize. And even when we think we understand, we come to that place of understanding ourselves We don't. So is it any wonder that people try to avoid it? To avoid the word. I mean, I know the writer is saying, don't harden your heart, strive to enter his rest. Not because I say so, but because the word says so. And if you don't, right, disobedience is costly. But just where we are tonight, can you feel the weight of that? And that's probably not even the right question. The question ought to be, do you feel the cut? Right, it's a double-edged sword. It cuts either way. And it does what it, the Lord intends for it to do. Even now. Now. So it's likely that many of us are feeling it in some form or fashion. And so I, I just want to ask for those who are Christians. Very possibly you're, you're feeling that cut. You're feeling that edge that sanctifies. Right? You're feeling a sanctifying edge. The, the Lord may just, just in this brief explanation of the passage. In the reading and the brief explanation of the passage the Lord may have used that effectively to pierce and to penetrate and to divide and to discern your heart or to expose a particular sin or some kind of wrong way of thinking. For what for us seems to be simple, he may have used this instrument of precision, this surgical dagger... To deal with an action or a thought or a desire or an intention that needs to be put to death and removed. And please, please know it's a it's a cut of grace. It's a gracious cut. Because what it does Even in bringing you to a place of feeling exposed, you may feel as though every eye is on you at this very moment, even though everybody's looking up here. But you may feel exposed and laid bare. But Listen, you're left in that place so that you might run to Christ. You've been laid bare to run to the Lord Jesus. He's our perfect priest. He is our perfect priest. And it is His robe of righteousness that you have been clothed in. It's Him that provides healing. It's Him to whom you should run because you need rest. You need Him. You need to hide in Him. And the purpose of this is to drive you in that direction. It's a gracious cut. For those who aren't Christians. You very possibly are feeling the edge of judgment. On the the other side. the, The Lord may have used this text that is alive and effective. To do things that I could never do on my own. And to penetrate and to pierce. And to divide and to discern and expose the sinfulness of your heart. To expose the sinfulness of your intentions. To expose the the sinfulness of your desires and actions. And it's a lethal weapon. It's a lethal weapon to reveal that you're at odds with the Lord. You're an enemy of His. You're separated from Him. But the good news is that. It too is a gracious cut. It's a merciful cut. Because you're feeling like, again, that all eyes are on you. And you're feeling like there's nowhere to hide. You want to run out of the room. But there's nowhere to go. He sees you. And he's offering in that state for you to come to Christ where you can hide, where you can find healing and where you can find rest. It's in him and him alone. There is no sin so great that you can't be forgiven. There is no sin so small that it doesn't need to be forgiven. And the Lord is using His word tonight to to call you to Him. It is the Lord Jesus who lived and died and rose again from the dead and ascended for sinners like us. He will forgive you, He will heal you, He will take your sin and your guilt and your shame, and He will cover you with His robe of righteousness. And so the call is to turn and to run to Him. Turn and run. In faith. And then lastly, just a couple things for us as a church as we think about this. Because the Because this is the word of God that is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account an account. We should submit to it. We should submit to it. We should approach it confidently and humbly, but we should emphasize what it emphasizes. We should call sin what it calls sin. We should forsake what it calls us to forsake. We should repent when it tells us to repent. We should forgive where it tells us to forgive. We should live freely where it allows us to live freely. We should worship as it commands us to worship. We should trust in the means of grace that He has established through it. We don't need to add anything to it. We shouldn't take anything from it. It should be the lens through which we interpret our experiences, and not the other way around. We should submit to it, and not the other way around. It is the word of the Lord. It is sufficient. And then, secondly, we should proclaim it. It should be what we proclaim. And, And I, the word. Listen, the word is not boring. The word of God is not boring. It is not out of date. We don't have to make it relevant. It is itself relevant. It is itself practical. We don't have to make it that way. We don't need to make it more palatable. We don't have to apologize for it. We need to rightly divide it, not shrink it down into pithy platitudes. It contains everything that we need for life and godliness. It, it contains everything that we need to equip us for every good work. It needs to be preached and taught boldly without exception. It ought to be that, it, it ought to be that that we use to provide advice to the people that we're around and that we're ministering to. It, it ought to be the first thing that we go to and we need to trust it to not return void. You need to trust it to do what the Lord intends for it to do. Brothers and sisters, none of us in this room have anything more powerful or better to offer anyone than the Word of God. It's what we need. It's what believers need. It's what the lost need. It's what we all need. May we be bold about it. May it be so. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well Father, we do thank you for your word. And we would pray that now in these moments that